looking at Exodus uh, chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 14, and we're going to skip over a chunk that we're going to look at next week. So, um, so we'll, we'll skip down to the end of the chapter as well and um, hear God's word to you, his beloved children. This day shall be for you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone uh, needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat, uh, you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it into the blood that's in a basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the house in, uh, until the morning for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on uh, the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow uh, the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come into the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel did, went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And skipping down to verse 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover, no foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired servant may uh, eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you for your holy word and here in ancient and, and maybe 
strange-sounding text to us. We pray that you would apply these words into our lives, into our community here in, in Bellingham in, in 2018. And Lord, we open our hearts to you. We need you to instruct us and um, uh, inspire us about the hope of, the, of grace that you offer us in Jesus. So be our teacher now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we are in our second week studying the famous story of the Old Testament of the Passover. And uh, the description of the Passover in Exodus chapter 12 is broken up into uh, two parts. The first part we looked at last week, which describes the actual night of the Passover. Uh, The people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt and the Lord was going to deliver them out of slavery. He was going to bring them to a promised land. And the night that they were going to leave was the night of the 10th great plague that the Lord brought on the Egyptians where he went into all the homes of the Egyptians and struck down the, the firstborn uh, of each of the Egyptian families. But the blood of the Passover lamb was on the doorposts of the, of the Israelites and so the Lord passed over their homes. And so the night of the Passover, the actual night of it, was the night of Israel's redemption. But also in this passage, the passage I just read, are a number of instructions, not just about the first night of the Passover, but the annual feast that Israel would keep throughout, you know, year after year after this, that they would remember what God had done for them when he delivered them out of Egypt. And so the Passover was not only a night of redemption, it was also a feast of renewal, of how they renewed their relationship with the Lord, and so that's what we're going to uh, uh, talk about today. Uh, you know, a big part of our life together here in this church is that we take the Lord's Supper every Sunday as a renewal, and the Lord's Supper originated during the Passover feast. Jesus took the elements of the Passover feast on the night before uh, uh, before he was crucified, and he re transformed the Passover so it was no longer talking about the exodus when Israel came out of slavery in Egypt and he transformed it so now these Passover elements are talking about him and this new exodus where he's delivering us from slavery to sin and you know when he dies on the cross for us and Jesus becomes the next day the ultimate Passover lamb you know you might have noticed in that passage I was just reading out it says make sure none of the bones of the lamb are broken when you're sacrificing it and the, the New Testament writers make a note and they say none of Jesus' bones were broken. They're trying to show that he is the Passover. He's the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. And so um, the Lord's Supper is in many ways is a transformed Passover. And there are some profound insights in this passage that I just read from the Passover that explain to us what we're doing every week in the Lord's Supper. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning Uh, some teaching on communion, and in particular, I want to point out four different ways of understanding what's happening here in this meal when we take communion every week. Four understandings, this is what they are. That the Lord's Supper is a memorial of the gospel, it's how we remember the gospel, what Jesus has done for us. It's a peace offering feast. You may not know what a peace offering is, I'm going to explain that. It's a lesson for children. The simple bread and wine is a lesson for children. That's what God intends. And lastly, it is a covenant renewal ceremony. All these things I'm going to explain. And we'll find that what we do every week here at the Lord's Supper is a rich 
experience. God is doing so much through these simple elements, and I, I hope that we can see and appreciate that together this morning. So four things. First is this. The Lord's Supper is, what is the Lord's Supper? It's a memorial of the gospel. And you can see that there in verse 14, where it's talking about the Passover. It says, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. And so this meal, the Passover meal, was for remembering what God had done in, in the Exodus. And, of course, Jesus says a very similar thing at the Lord's Supper. What does he say? This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We're, we're supposed to remember the gospel. He's using that same thing as a memorial. Now, that little line that Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That line has been the object of a tremendous amount of controversy throughout church history what exactly is happening when Jesus says, this is my body and blood? How are we supposed to understand that? And some of you may know this, that the Roman Catholic view was that during communion, when the priest would, would say the words of institution, there would be a bell that was rung. The, uh, the bread and the wine would actually transform into the actual body and blood of Jesus. And so when you know, we break the bread, they would believe there's an actual sacrifice happening. Jesus body is being broken again. His blood is being shed. And actual, actual um, sins are being paid for and we're being released from punishments. People who are in the Mass and who are outside of the Mass is, is actually happening. And so during the time of the Reformation, the 16th century, the Reformers heard that and, uh, and they say, you know, that sounds like idolatry to say this bread is God, is Jesus, and this blood is actually Jesus because people are worshiping and adoring the bread and wine. They said, well, you know, he can't be being sacrificed over and over again. Jesus died on the cross once for all to pay for all sins forever. And, um, and so on the opposite end of the view was the view of a guy named Ulrich Zwingli, who said the bread and wine are not actually Jesus' body and blood. They're simply a memorial. Like Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And that's all, all it is, is these things remind us of the gospel. And then when we think of the gospel, and it, it's comforting us to be reminded of the gospel. But, there, you know, there's, there's not a, a real power or presence that Jesus is giving us through these elements of bread and wine. Now, you might ask, okay, so there's a spectrum here. What, what does our church believe? Um, our we're somewhere in the middle. Um, we have the view of, of John Calvin. And John Calvin had a view called the real presence where he said, when you come and you eat this bread and this wine, you are actually partaking of who, of Christ himself. But it's through the Holy Spirit. Jesus in his body and blood is not actually present here, but he's present here by his spirit. That's how Jesus, you know, when Jesus says, I'm going to be with you always, he's with us by sending his Holy Spirit among us. And so... Um, when you receive these elements by faith, you are really receiving Christ himself wholly, including his body and blood. So it's a profound mystery, but there is a real power at work when we take these elements. And what this tells us is that the language of remembering in the Bible is different than how we usually use the word remembering. When you hear remembering, you think it means, well, you called something to mind. I remembered where my keys were or something like that. But in the, uh, in the you know, there are other uses of the word remember. For example, if you're praying to God and you ask God to remember your grandma, 
you're not asking God to call to mind that your grandma's there or, you know, she's sick. You're asking God to be active, to be present. Remember her, go heal her, comfort her, make her better, strengthen her. You're asking God to do something. And when we are taking the Lord's Supper as a remembrance, Jesus is active and present in this meal. That's what remembrance is in the Bible. It's a powerful thing that actually transforms us. And we should be encouraged that when we take these elements in faith, Jesus is active and present in our hearts and our minds and our bodies um, and in our lives. And so there's real hope and real grace offered here. Okay, so first thing, what is the Lord's Supper? It's a memorial of the gospel, but it's a kind of memorial where there's active presence. Second thing in this passage is that the Lord's Supper is a peace offering feast. And, you know, the Passover feast was a week long. If you've read about that in the Gospels, when Jesus died, he was in Jerusalem for that, that Passover week. And in this passage, it says it starts on the 14th day. It goes to the 21st day, and you're, you're supposed to eat unleavened bread. And then there was the killing of the Passover lamb. There's a part of it that you read about in verse 21 where it says, Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. And this lamb down in verse 37, or 27, sorry, if you skip down to verse 27, is called a sacrifice. You see that? You shall say it is a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. Now, in the Old Testament, there were basically three kinds of uh, sacrifices that were described. If you go and look in the book of Leviticus, there's the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offering. And if you've ever tried to read Leviticus, the first seven chapters will describe all these to you. And you might say, How do, what do all these mean? Well, each of the, these three offerings had a different um, thing that they were emphasizing. So the first one, the peace offering, is when a worshiper or a priest would come, they'd lay their hands on an animal, and the animal was dying in the place of the person. So the person had sinned against God, and the punishment for their sins now being put on this animal so that it makes atonement, so they're set right. And so it's dying in their place and washing away their sins. That's what a sin offering does. Burn offering is similar. Worshiper puts their hands on, on the animal. The animal is killed. But the emphasis of the burnt offering is that when the animal is burned, the smoke goes up toward heaven. And it's representing that, that once we are cleansed, when we are made right with God, we ascend into God's presence. We're welcomed into God's presence. And then the last offering had a different emphasis, the peace offering. And the thing that was different about the peace offering is that the worshiper, the whole family with the priest and with God would all have a feast together. They'd eat the offering together. So that was the thing that it was the culmination where you got to have a meal with God. And so you think about the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offering. Which one was the Passover? It was a peace offering. It's kind of the most famous peace offering. It's where the family eats the Passover lamb together as a family. It's a peace offering. And um, now if you go to the book of Leviticus, you can see that these offerings follow an order to them. You know, you, you come to worship. The sin offering cleanses you. The burnt offering brings you into God's presence. And the peace offering is the ultimate place of intimacy with God where you eat with him. That ordering is the exact same ordering that we do every Sunday morning in our church. You know, how does our worship service start? We confess our sins and we're 
given a word of pardon. That's the sin offering, that we're being cleansed of our sins. And then after we have the greet time, what do we have after the greet time? I know you're all talking when I say this, so you may not hear it. But we're now going to sing the song of ascent. That's the same word for the burnt offering is the ascent offering. And it's the time where we now ascend into God's presence and God speaks to us from his holy word. And then where does our worship service end? It culminates in a meal that we all eat in God's presence. This movement from you were far off, God called you to himself, he washed you, he brought you into his presence, he taught you, and now he brings you to his table as his beloved child. That story is the story of our lives. And so every week when we come here and we walk through this liturgy, some of you may not understand this, this order of worship that you go through every, every week, but there's a real intentionality to it. It tells us, this is who my story, I was someone who was far off, who's been now brought near intimately to God as one of his beloved children. And actually, it's not just the story of our individual lives, but the liturgy tells us the story of the world. You know, we begin our worship service by praising God as the creator who gives us all good things, that God created all things for his own purposes. And then humanity fell. That's when we confess our sins, that all of humanity has sinned against God and rebelled against him. But then we talk about the gospel and about how Jesus has come to forgive our sins and to reconcile us back to God. And then we offer ourselves, you know, we say the Apostles' Creed and we, we say prayers for church and the world and we give um, our offerings. Is for us to say, now God, we want to be your servants in the world as God does his mission in the world. And then ultimately we come to his table and eat with him, which is the end of history where God's children will come and eat at the great marriage supper of the lamb. That's how, that's how the, the life to come is described as a great meal with God. This thing that we walk through every week tells us not only our individual stories, but the story of the world we're living in. Is, this is powerful. And so this is what is happening in the Lord's Supper. And so the Lord's Supper is a memorial of the gospel. We remember what Jesus has done for us, but in a way where he's active and present in, in you know, changing our hearts. And it's a peace-offering feast. It's the culmination of all his work to bring us close to him. But you'll notice that I, I mentioned that peace offerings in the Passover were eaten by families. Uh, in the Old Testament is families who came together to eat. And that leads to another important uh, part of this passage about the meaning of communion is that the Lord's Supper is also a lesson for children. It's a lesson for children, which I, I think makes sense. You know, there's a simple elements of bread and wine. There is a, a simplicity to it that speaks profoundly to anyone. And you can see the role of children in this passage if you look at, at verse 24. It says, you shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses and the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Now what this tells us is that first of all, children were meant to be included in the Passover meal and they were important participants. 
Actually, I think that's still true in, in when Jews keep the Passover. There, there are questions where children will come and ask the father about the story of the Exodus and say, what was it that God did for us? And the children would come, and that, that was, that's a, all a part of the meal, the, 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 the children asking questions. And this is why in our church we, we actually admit very young children to the Lord's table. As soon as they say, I believe in Jesus, and I want to be a part of God's family, we, they meet with a couple of our elders, and they profess their faith. Faith and uh, so they're baptized in infants, and then a young age, they come and uh, participate in the um, in the table with us. And so the first thing we see is that children were meant to be participants, but the second is that the Lord intended this to be a powerful time for fathers to teach their children. The children ask, "What is the meaning of this?" And the father tells the story in the, of the old, in the Old Testament. The good news of the Old Testament was the Exodus. They'd say, God, we were slaves and God saved us. In the New Testament, it's the gospel that Jesus has saved us from our sins. And so that would be a story to say, you know what? Our family, we, sin wants to just tear our family apart. We all have sinners and it would, just, it would make us just hate each other. And yet Jesus is, is calming our hearts and our only hope of peace that we'd get along is because Jesus loves us and he pours his love into our hearts and he, and he helps us along. And so we should never, and you know, in a church like this where we take communion every week, we should never have any children who grow up here saying, I never heard the good news of grace in Jesus in my church. I never heard that should be whispered in their ears. And, you know, what are some of the things that you could say to a young child who's taking the Lord's Supper? You could say, hey, look, that body broken. What's the body broken? That's Jesus dying on the cross. That's, a, that's what he did for us, and his blood was shed for us. Or, you know, as we come forward, you can look around at all the people in the church who are taking the bread, you know. And I can look, and I say, oh, there's Daniel. Daniel's eating the bread. Christ is in him. And there's Andrea. She's taking the bread, and Christ is in her. And JP has taking the bread. Christ is in him. And I look around the whole community. I say, Jesus is in all these people. And then as the kid says, I take the bread. Jesus is in me too. I'm a part of this family. I am in. It's a profound message to hear that week in and week out as a child. And God intends for children to learn that way. Um, and this is why we have a very modest profession of faith that we demand from our children for them to come to the table. You know, they come and meet with a couple elders and we say, hey, do you know that you're a sinner? Do you disobey your mom and dad? And they say, yeah. Do you, you know, does God like sin? No, God doesn't like sin. Who's the only one who can take away our sin? Jesus. What did, how did, what did Jesus do for you? He died on the cross for me. Did he stay dead? No, he rose again from the dead, you know. And, and then when we say this bread, this is Jesus' body broken. When was Jesus' body broken? Oh, when he died on the cross. When was his blood shed? Oh, it's when he died on the cross. That's what this meal is about. It's not a snack. It's about the cross. That can be understood at a very young age. It's very simple. Many children have said these things to us, and they thought, oh, man, do I need to know all kinds of theology to come and commune with Jesus? No. They do not need to become mature in the gospel and then come to the table. I mean, imagine if we said that about physical food. You know, you need to get strong and mature, and then we're going to start feeding you. <laughs> no. <laughs> you feed them so they get mature and strong. They need the food. That's what the food does is it makes you mature and strong. This is the spiritual food. And I think, you know, many young kids who are in our church, they sit in this service, and they say, 
you know, maybe they can't read and sing along with the songs, and that's above their head, and that guy gives a long sermon, and I don't know what he's talking about that whole time. And they're sitting here. A lot of it's going over their head. The Lord made this meal something that children can understand, bread and wine, body broken, blood shed, Christ in you, Christ in us. Anyone can be nourished, inspired, encouraged, and have their faith built by that gospel, okay? So three things we see so far. So the, the Lord's Supper is a memorial of the gospel. It is a peace-offering feast where we actually eat in God's presence, and it is a lesson for children. The last thing we see in this passage is that this meal is a covenant renewal ceremony. And what I mean by that is that the nature of God's relationship to us in the Bible is covenantal. And a covenantal relationship is a relationship that's held together by promises and obligations. It's very much like a marriage. You know, when a marriage is formed, a marriage is started in, on a wedding day where two people take vows and they make promises to each other. And that forms the structure of the relationship. And throughout the Bible, you will find that God describes his relationship to his people in terms of a husband and a wife. You know, the church is the bride of Christ. So it's like a marriage. And a marriage begins with a ceremony or a service that initiates the marriage covenant. That's the wedding. Then how is that covenant renewed? It's through the marriage bed. God has given the marriage bed as a way that a married couple over and over again throughout their life say, I'm still with you. We're still one. Uh, my wedding vow, that's how you renew your wedding vows is, is, is through the marriage bed. And it's supposed to happen over and over again. It's how a husband and wife again become one flesh. Now the Passover and the Lord's Supper were also covenant renewal ceremonies that were supposed to be done over and over again to, to, renew, uh, to renew the covenant. In the Old Testament, a family became a part, the way a family initiated their relationship with God is that all the males of the family were circumcised. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant. And then that covenant was renewed every year through the Passover. And that's why in this passage has this insistence that any family who ate at the Passover had to have all their males circumcised first. So you see that there in verse 43. Look at what 43 says. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave, which by the way, the mention of slaves in this passage, I know some of you will have some questions about that's a big question I don't have time to address right now, but we're going to have a whole sermon on it once we get to Exodus chapter 21. So you'll just have to, you'll have to wait till we get there. You can ask me questions uh, if you want after the service. But this says, but every slave um, that, has, that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house, and you shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house, it shall, uh, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger so, shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. Now when this passage says that a foreigner in Israel was not permitted to eat the Passover, 
this is not a racist statement that we'll only eat with people who are of our ethnicity. Um, what this is, because immediately after, the Lord says, if you have a stranger or sojourner among you and they want to eat the Passover with you, they can, but they need to first covenant with God through circumcision and have all their, their male circumcised and say, we want to be a part of God's family and we need the covenant sign. And in fact, we'll see this next week. The passage that we're going to look at next week tells us that the whole group of people that left Egypt was a mixed multitude of not just Israelites. There were Egyptians, there were probably people from other nations who lived in Egypt who saw all the ten plagues and they thought, this, wow, this God is the real deal. He's the real God. He has power over creation. We're going to go with them and we're going to live with them. And we want your God to be our God and your people are going to be my people. But the ordering in this passage is clear is that circumcision is first and then you eat the Passover. Now, in the same way in our day, a person enters into covenant with God through the rite of baptism. And the way we, they renew their baptism is through the, the Lord's Supper. There are other places in the Bible that describe that you're washed and baptized first, and then you eat and drink second. And, um, and so if you've come to our church and you've ever wondered why every week we say you must be baptized in order to take the Lord's Supper is because the way you come into relationship with God is through baptism. And the way you renew that relationship is through the Lord's Supper. You know, it's similar Christians are so insistent that you shouldn't have sex until you're married. You need the wedding day. You need the covenant because what sex is is a renewal of that covenant. It's the same principle. And, uh, and so that's why we say that the Lord's Supper is a covenant renewal ceremony. And I, I do want to add, I know that the, the analogy of the Lord's Supper and sex might be uncomfortable for some of you. Uh, but this is, you know... The Bible does say the church is the bride of Christ. We are becoming one flesh with Jesus through his body and blood. That's what's happening through the Lord's Supper. And I think there's another lesson from this parallel that, you know, when a husband and wife make love to one another, it's not just a symbol. Their relationship is deepened. The union is deepened. Their relationship is transformed. And so it's not just a sign. There's, there's a power at work there. And it's true. When we commune with our Lord Jesus here, there is a power at work. The, the union is deepened. The relationship is deepened. And something like that is happening every week when we come to the Lord's Supper. And some of you, you know, maybe you came from a church where the Lord's Supper wasn't a part of your weekly practice. And then you've realized once you've done it for a year or two or many years, you say, that's it. Important, essential part of my weekly life of communion with the Lord is coming to his table. And so the Lord gives himself to us in this meal. It is a memorial that is more than just calling to mind. It's, he is active and present here by his Holy Spirit. It's a peace offering that we are eating in the presence of God. It's a, it's a lesson that little children can come and understand. And it is an act of renewal where God wants us over and over again to know that we are his. That's all I have to say. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this rich text that this little act that seems so simple that we do together is so charged with meaning. 
And yet we also thank you that you don't demand that we understand what peace offerings are or covenants are in order to benefit or to commune with our Lord and to receive our Lord in this meal. You just demand of us faith that we would rest in him. Give us that faith as we come to your table today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.